Hi, welcome to another uh, podcast, uh, Orthopod. I'm here with professor and chair at Louisiana State University School of Medicine, New Orleans, Bob Zura, friend and colleague. Bob, welcome. Hey, good morning, Mo. Good to see you. So, you know, I'm sure you've given lots and lots of discussions on a variety of topics as it relates to the current situation. But one I thought we could chat about would be, you know, specifically as it relates to trauma and, you know, really the fact that there really isn't much surgery. Elective cases are, for the most part, and I'm assuming the same is true for your institution, have been uh, put on hold. And only the most urgent uh, trauma is getting triaged for care, leaving a lot of trauma patients that may have had surgery or us rethinking about who needs surgery and who doesn't and can we treat them non-operatively. Can you speak a little bit to the state of trauma triaging at your institution? Yeah, I'd be happy to, Mo. Thanks. Uh, we're, we're perhaps in a little bit of a unique position, even uh, as as you may imagine. Uh, New Orleans uh, tends to have different busier, busy seasons in trauma than maybe some of the rest of the, of the country or, or North America or even the world. Uh, one, our weather uh, allows this time of year to actually be quite nice and people are outside. The summer is almost too hot to be outside, so it's a usual busy time for us. Yeah. We also have Mardi Gras, which... Uh, culminated on Fat Tuesday, which was February 25th this year, I think. And that brings a couple million people to town. And as you would imagine, you get traumas associated with the crowds, but you also get that cold trauma that shows up 10, 14 days later in your clinic, which is right around when we were getting our first cases and right around when we shut down. And you're correct that our state of affairs is the same as it is most everywhere, I imagine. Fairly early on to stop elective surgeries uh, and the threshold initially was if we thought it would have an impact on the patient's ultimate health or outcome for a four-week window and uh, I think the timing has actually left our wording from the state mandate so now it's just you can't do surgery unless you think it would cause bodily harm for orthopedics you know some other specialties have different uh, directions and we also became a hot spot uh, very early on, before New York uh, was growing a little bit more rapidly than us, we at one point were one of the fastest uh, growing number of cases in the, on the planet. Uh, so we had great anxiety at our hospital that our operating rooms were going to become intensive care units. We anticipated that we would run out of resources. So we uh, were pretty uh, draconian in stopping our surgery. So you're correct that you know that we've had the same impact as everybody else in as much as that our elective surgeries are gone. Uh, and we actually had this new influx of fractures from Mardi Gras and, and people being in town. Uh, so we are going to be stuck with this conundrum that you're talking about, that we have patients with fractures. We continue to have patients come in with fractures, some who meet uh, the urgent emergent uh, requirements and some that don't with limited resources, limited PPE, limited ORs. Uh, and it is a challenge how we're going to approach treating them. So, I mean, has there been, uh, I'm sure there are, because I mean, at every institution, certainly ours, there's discussions around, okay, this is someone that I'd, I think we can treat non-operatively and we'll go ahead and give it a try. Um, is that discussion happening more so than not, or are you simply using the same tactics as before? I'm assuming the answer is the former, which is I think things are getting pushed more to non-operative treatment. And if that's the case, you know, we don't have a lot of non-operative, you know, short of, you know, careful splinting, all the techniques that we, you know, that we have often put on the back burner. Are you seeing a resurgence in that thinking anyway, around, you know, appropriate splinting, you know, where where you should just go right to the operating with something. You know, splinting fractures has not been 
high priority uh, in, in a time of plenty when you actually have resources and ability to fix, you know, given the obvious advantages in, in many cases of, you know, of return to function and outcomes. But that being said, is that discussion happening now? It is, Mo. That's a, that's a great point. And uh, it, we are having those discussions on a daily basis. Uh, I think that they're leaving it a little bit open-ended so each surgeon can de decide for themselves and each hospital can decide what their resources are and what their needs, what each individual patient uh, requires. But we're trying to be good stewards of our PPE. Uh, we have a very busy intensive care units and, and floors and, the, and our medicine folks on the front lines and we want to preserve our PPE. So we are, when we, we limit when we go to the operating room and we're limiting how many residents and, and folks even use masks or gowns when we go in. But we do have those same discussions every day. We just finished our morning checkout and had some of them again. And, and you're right, Mo, that we're uh, we're starting to talk about articles that you and I talked about in training. And I'm okay. telling stories about uh, sitting patients up with tibia fractures and all right, splitting them uh, uh, in the ED. Uh, so. Right. Uh, that's really uh, an interesting, almost historical perspective for the residents. Yeah. Uh, and as an example, this morning we had a tongue-type calcaneus. Again, it was non-displaced, so there wasn't skin at risk, but uh, one that I said if it was me, I would want it treated operatively uh, in, in right. normal times, but we're treating this patient non-operatively. So we start talking about bulky Jones splinting. We talked about anterior slab and plantar flexion. So yes, uh, yeah. to answer your question, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're Having a resurgence. Yeah, I could open up those books. But it also, it's an important, you know, uh, we, we evolved from those uh, practices for some good reasons, but also we may have lost some of the skills. Uh, so that's a great point. Absolutely. And I mean, the other thing that comes up a lot too is, okay, so you have injuries and then, you know, um, that'll be treated non-operatively that you would otherwise want to treat operatively. Um, that, you know, sort of the complications of trauma that are likely going to be become you know, sort of the burden, you know, after this first wave, because there's a lot of things being treated that are going to suddenly require secondary procedures, possibly, you know, so we can talk malunion, we can talk delayed union, we can talk non-union, but I mean, is that a concern at this point or, um, you know, is it just sort of, you know, you, you will deal with things as they come. I imagine there are patients who are on the list for um, revision procedures, you know, that were already on the list that are just being held off. Are they, are there, is there any recourse for that group of individuals at this point? Yeah, I think uh, it's the great unknown, isn't it? Uh, you know, yeah. I don't know when we're going to get back, and uh, so then it kind of becomes a question: Are we going to be seeing? We're, we know we're going to be seeing neglected trauma. Uh, we know that there yeah. are some things that we wanted to operate on that we're going to have to delay. We know that there's patients at home that aren't coming in. We're calling patients on our list with patella fractures and they just they won't come in to see us uh, as an example right. so we know right. we're going to be treating neglected trauma uh, and it, those of us who've done you know a care around the world you know it may bring us back to some of the care we provided in 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 countries without as many resources as we have so uh i don't know the exact answer to your question because i don't know if we're going to be dealing with a little just yeah. a little bit of an older fracture which we're kind of used to here just with our population takes a while to get to us sometimes. So I take callus off a lot of fibulas that I fix. Or am I oh, going to yeah, be yeah. dealing with delayed unions or non-unions and, uh, and those sort of things. And that, and that will bring out a whole different uh, set of challenges. So I do think once we get out of the starting blocks and start working again, we're going to have some really difficult cases. Uh, and like, I'm, I'm sure uh, as with others, you're probably, um, diving in as many have into some sort of virtual health or telehealth 
interactions with patients, these follow-up, for example, are patients themselves saying, listen, doc, if I can't get this procedure, can I try this or can I try that? Are you getting any sort of, uh, you know, with, with, with Google and the way things are, uh, patients are pretty pretty proactive right now in trying to find ways to heal themselves. Are, are they proposing things right now when they can't get fracture treatment or they're in a cast and they want to speed up stuff or anything? Are they coming to you with anything? We are getting some of that, though. It's uh, To answer the first half of your question, our population here, uh, we're struggling with telemedicine a little bit. Our hospital has done a great job of getting it online, but yeah. most of our patients don't have the resources to uh, to make it successful. My personal take on it is orthopedic injury care is a face-to-face -face event. You know, it's, yeah. you need a physical exam and you need imaging. So that's challenging to do by te telemedicine. But that being said, you're absolutely right in the point that you make. And we are having patients who are uh, much more savvy about their decision for surgery. They're, they're, I, I wouldn't say they're not as trusting, but they're maybe more actively involved. And we do mm -hmm. have patients that are uh, uh, changing operative plans, even some fractures that we felt met the urgent criteria have decided that they want non-operative care. I think they're afraid to come into the hospital. We're a COVID epicenter in our building, and I'm yeah. not sure they want to come have surgery there. And I, and I don't blame them. So yes, we absolutely are getting that, uh, which like you brought up earlier, that gives us new challenges on you know how to uh, get them mobilized and get them as functioning as highly as they can, but also to get them healed in a good position. You know, it's, it's actually interesting, Bob, and I'll, and I'll probably end with this and maybe give you sort of a final say here, but uh, you know, the one thing that I've, uh, it, it's incredible how things shift and change. And when we look at the changing epidemiology of trauma, I mean, around the world, I just have the, you know, I've been having the opportunity to speak to folks around the world right now through this sort of venue. And you get the same thing, trauma, like the streets are empty, like the streets in India, for example, are empty. And you know it's it's a trauma mega center usually with injuries happening all the time. They're seeing a different epidemiology of injury. The patients that normally would get operating are are waiting. We're seeing a completely different experiment right now around you know what happens when you don't treat let's say for fracture care what happens and then what are going to be the outcomes. And I think right now is the time to be trying to evaluate all of these different things. You know what works, what doesn't. Are there things in fact that can do reasonably well uh, with delays? I don't think we've ever had a a natural history experiment where patients were forced in one way because of our rules and safety issues to have delayed procedures or to have non-operative as one of their primary uh, you know approaches never thought we'd ever have that a moment to study this so i think we're particularly interested to understand you know sort of the resurgence of non-operative approaches during this period and the question is do you think all this stuff is going to stick around so things you're learning during this period you say you know that didn't turn out that badly. Maybe we will, or will we go right back and forget and go right back to the you know fairly aggressive approaches that I think those modern countries that have the ability and resources to do. Will we will we learn anything from this period? I guess around triaging patients and who needs operative versus non-operative treatment is my question. Yes, Mo, that's a uh, that's a really interesting question and, and a great point. Uh, I hadn't heard that uh, uh, fact about India, and I and I've just been there recently, and that's that's very interesting and and a little bit surprising even. I'm I'm glad to hear that from a COVID standpoint. Yeah. Uh, from a fracture standpoint, I think our our mentors, Mo, are are probably laughing a little bit as they are enter or in retirement. Uh, that we we were the generation that really I think aggressively pushed surgical treatment of a lot of fractures and and yeah. uh, maybe didn't listen to all the lessons that they taught us along the way about conservative care. So it's been fun to relearn some of those and to teach some of those. Uh, 
that being said, I, I don't know how to predict where we come out of this. I think there's a, uh, I don't think we treated people aggressively just for financial benefit. I don't think we treated people more aggressively just for uh, not agreeing with you know, how we were trained early on. I think we believe that was you know ideal for our patients and, and I hope so. Uh, so I, I think that we'll probably uh, come back very close to where we were. That being said, the postscript on COVID and the postscript on this is gonna be really interesting to read. And I hope that we are open uh, to learning from this and to evolving from this. And perhaps we're gonna learn that telemedicine is an option for some of our patients. We can get more people in quickly that way. Perhaps we're gonna learn that certain fractures or certain populations did, did as well or, or better without surgery. And, and, and maybe there'll be certain fractures that we uh, learn some of the old lessons again on. So uh, I don't have a perfect answer for you, Mo. Uh, yeah. I'm open to, to, to learning from it, uh, but my guess is we're gonna be back pretty quickly where we were. Yeah, and I, 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 all I say is that when we have these moments to reflect, we often think about, okay, in situations where patients are gonna wait for surgery, are there things we can be doing to optimize it? I think if we can maximize or optimize our understanding of all the ways to make non-operative care more successful and especially the care fractures more successful but that's a good learning experience that's a good test for us to go back into history or to go back into the evidence and say what stuff works um, and what minimally invasive stuff works and what can we do i know there's been all kinds of you know research around you know minimally invasive approaches and possibly using you know uh, other external devices but all of that should be now at least considered in light of the evidence and where we are on that note um, Dr. Zerf, thank you so much for spending time with us. And uh, once again, I'm uh, wishing you and your colleagues and your family, uh, I know, a sort of a safe and healthy return to normality, whatever that may be in the coming months.